This is Radio Siams, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission, to probe the critical debates in archaeology in conversation between leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. On October 9, 2019, archaeologist Carl Knappett of the University of Toronto met a panel of Siams students and faculty to discuss his upcoming book, G and Bronze Age Art, Meaning in the Making. It's time to think things over. Stay tuned for Radio Science. Hello and welcome to this edition of Radio Science. My name is Verity Platt and I'm a professor here at Cornell in the Department of Classics and History of Art, as well as the current chair of the Science Speakers Committee. Given that our speaker theme this year is the aesthetic turn in archaeology, it's my pleasure today to introduce our guest for this Radio Science episode. Carl Knappert is a professor in the Departments of Art History, Anthropology and Classics at the University of Toronto, where he's also the Walter Graham and Wilmer Thompson Chair in Aegean Prehistory and heads the Aegean Material Culture Lab. Professor Knappert is known for his pioneering work on the archaeology of the Aegean Bronze Age, especially Minoan Crete, where for many years he's conducted fieldwork at the site of Palaikastro for his expertise in Bronze Age ceramics, and for his pioneering approach to theories of material culture, object agency, production, and exchange. In his work on networks, making, and materiality, he brings together the discourses of archaeology, anthropology, and history of art in unique and exciting ways. No more so than in the work that is our touchdown for today's conversation, which is a pair of chapters from Professor Nappert's forthcoming book, Aegean Bronze Age Art, Meaning in the Making. We'll be discussing chapter one, meaning in the making, and chapter two on modelling. Around the table with us today in Cornell's Landscapes and Object Laboratory are two students who are members of SIAMS and who will be leading the discussion. They'll introduce themselves in turn as we go around the table. And I'd like to start things off by asking Carl, why this book now? Why did you feel that there is a need for a new book on Aegean Bronze Age art in particular? And how would you describe your approach to the material, especially the concept of art? Um, thanks very much uh, for having me here. And uh, thanks too for reading, um, taking the trouble to read these, these chapters. I'd say uh, one motivation for uh, writing this book now for me um, is that I got a little bit tired, I suppose, of, of writing uh, theoretically on materiality and uh, thought it was about time to try and uh, do something a bit more empirical. Um, so even though there's a rather long theoretical preamble, um, which I seemed uh, not to be able to avoid, um, I really wanted to get into some of the uh, the detail of uh, a particular uh, body of material. Um, and so I thought, as I do the Aegean Bronze Age, that would be a sensible body of material to choose. Um, so that's that's one reason to try and be as empirical as possible in in this book. Um, I guess a reason for talking about art as opposed to any other term one might use um, is that I really wanted to um, cross different media and different kinds of um, uh, material and visual culture. So to talk about figurines and house models and um, miniatures 
um, seals, all kinds of uh, different materials. And part seems to be one way of um, achieving that, um, partly building on a fabulous couple of volumes by Jean-Claude Poxat uh, called La Égéen, uh, which has an art focus and which uh, travels across all these different kinds of uh, material evidence in a way that uh, very few people have managed, I think. Um, it may be also to do with being in an art history department um, and thinking about what um, art history students might uh, want to do. Hello, I'm Sophia. I'm a PhD student in classical archaeology. Um, and I think going off of that question, I would like to ask you about scale, um, since that's an important factor in dealing with um, networks and materiality. How did you choose your scale? And if you could contrast with some of the other, um, either too small or too large scale um, in the field. Yeah, in, in a book a few um, years ago, I kind of quite explicitly um, di differentiated micro scale from meso scale from macro scale, which is perhaps a bit um, mechanistic, but I was really trying to think methodologically about how one could use networks to kind of uh, connect different scales. Because my feeling was that um, archaeologists perhaps um, moved across these scales um, rather intuitively. I mean, I think most archaeologists think about things at a micro scale. Perhaps that could mean um, particular distributions of materials within a, a room or even within a part of a room. And then a sort of meso scale of how uh, let's say, humans and non-humans interacting at a um, community level, perhaps, and then um, at the macro scale, regionally and interregionally. Um, so in, in that book, uh, An Archaeology of Interaction, I was, I was quite keen to talk about those different scales, particularly because networks had been used in archaeology mostly at a kind of regional, interregional scale. So I wanted to try and think through how one might use that method and way of thinking, even at a community scale and even at a kind of micro scale. I didn't particularly succeed in that because I didn't really show how uh, that would really work. It was more kind of a, an exercise trying to show people that networks uh, offered that possibility. Um, I think there's been some more work recently um, showing how you can do it at these, at these different scales. Um, Scale in that sense hasn't been a particular focus of this latest book, although I'm, I'm quite keen to um, think about how material culture works or operates, you know, within communities and then across broader scale. So in my last chapter, I, I do talk about, you know, if you have particular forms of artistic expression, let's say, on Crete, then how far and to what extent do they spread and have mobility across the southern Aegean, say to the to the mainland? That's a partial answer to your question, I think. And how about the scale of objects? So the idea of the miniature is very important to quite a lot of what you're covering. Um, yes, it's uh, 
it's kind of an interesting feature of of uh, Cretan Bronze Age art, in particular, um, that a lot of the action seems to be at this very very small scale, in perhaps rather simple contrast to Egypt and uh, the Near East, where there's a lot of monumentality. It's very hard to find much monumental um, scaled up like um, artwork on, on Crete, to the extent that um, back in the 50s, uh, a lady called Grunewig in Frankfurt uh, described uh, you know, the Aegean Bronze Age art, and Minoan art especially, as kind of intrinsically playful. And so there's a, a kind of a rather long line of thinking about Minoan art, not just its sort of naturalism and the, the idea of nature lovers um, in Minoan art, but also uh, this kind of uh, diminutive scale at which a lot of the art appears. And there's this huge corpus of uh, seals and ceilings, um, more than 11,000 uh, seal types, um, which is all at an incredible scale of like one to two centimeters. And that's where most of the earliest figurative art uh, appears before larger scale uh, depictions, let's say wall paintings. So I think it's really important to, if one's going to tackle the Minoan art at all, to recognize the importance of the scale reduction and of, uh, those other ways of describing it, miniaturization, um, because it affects all kinds of things. Seals, as I said, clay uh, vessels, stone vessels, quite a range of figurines, quite a range of uh, forms of expression. Um, hi, I'm Rebecca Gerties. I'm also a PhD student in classical archaeology here at Cornell. And I'd like to ask a little bit more about your, um, I don't know if you would want to call it a theoretical framework since your, your goal is to have this be more practical than theoretical, but um, so you speak very directly to what some people have called the relational turn, um, and yet you highlight um, what you call a developmental approach. Um, and perhaps to some reading that initially, that might ring some bells in, uh, in terms of thinking evolutionarily about art, about art having some kind of um, pinnacle of, um, of uh, artistic ideals. So how does your approach contrast to um, those earlier evolutionary models, and also how do you see it as distinct from, um, from more static approaches? Yeah, I mean, in archaeology, um, as soon as you start talking about um, the cognitive, um, which is the context in which I'm using developmental, really, as soon as you start using that term, um, it makes many archaeologists think of evolutionary approaches, um, maybe cognitive processualism, um, and I can see why that happens, because a lot of the, uh, uh, well, a good deal of evolutionary um, archaeology is uh, interested in, um, you know, early symbolism and um, how we can get at early forms of cognition. But I don't think there needs to be that necessary relationship um, at all. And I think there's um, a lot of misunderstanding, actually, of what cognitive um, uh, can mean. It's, it's in a lot of the practice-oriented approaches 
which kind of creates a kind of flattening um, of the world. Um, there's no room uh, for the cognitive. So I'm I'm quite influenced and have been in conversation for a long time with uh, uh, Lambros Malafouris, who's been developing uh, an approach to cognition in archaeology that draws a lot on people like Ed Hutchins and uh, Andy Clark, which is which involves an approach to cognition that recognizes it as extended, active, embodied, etc. So that's how I'm thinking of the developmental. It's in the context of cognition and how cognition um, often uses scaffolding techniques really to piggyback on the world and use the world as its own best model. Um, so it's an approach that should be quite well suited to archaeologists um, because it really makes material culture kind of integral to um, to thought. I found it very helpful the way that in thinking about scaffolding and also the idea of skeuomorphism, you are then able to move across media and typologies in ways that um, are less common in certain aspects of, of certainly classical art history. We, we are so limited by our by our typologies and our categories. Um, and so your more con conceptual or thematic approach where you think about imprinting and modeling and um, miniaturization really helps you cross these boundaries in a very effective way. Um, and I wondered about the way you talk about modeling in particular. I was one coming at it from a point of view of a classical art historian, um, the terms that would be used for the kind of phenomena that you talk about in that chapter in later Greek would be tupos and paradigma, or kind of imprint and paradigm. Or, um, and the idea of the paradigma comes up repeatedly as a kind of bridging concept between the material and the abstract. And, and you touch on the way that models can, can act as that kind of interface between mind and matter. Um, a few times in that chapter, I wondered if you could say a little bit more about that. Yes, I mean, that's exactly what I'm trying to get at throughout the book, really, um, is that uh, lots of ideas don't really find expression and can't really find expression until they're worked out through materials um, in some way. Um, I think that's um, quite clear in various ways with models. Um, there's, I mean, within the cognitive science literature, Andy Clark has written about this, um, talking about surrogate situations uh, where one might use reduced scale models to uh, sort of picture, in a sense, a real life scenario and then work through that surrogate situation to get a handle on the real, so to speak. Um, and um, Day has has run with that in uh, religious contexts as well, in thinking about how with various kinds of um, approaches, let's say, um, they might be good ways of thinking through you know, more complex um, ideas. I think it's also the case with um, something like uh, containing, <clears throat> where it's been said that 
the, the body is just naturally the arch container that the, any, the humans initially would have conceived of themselves as containers, inevitably. And then that container metaphor is extended out into the world and people make pots and whatever. I'm not so sure about that. I'm not so sure that it's not the other way around that, you know, we, we might not have um, at some point in human history have started making containers of various kinds and through that um, creation of void and volume started to think of our own bodies in, in similar ways. Um, so I think, yes, throughout I'm, I'm trying to, uh, with imprinting and containing and uh, modeling, um, seeing it as exactly what you say is something between um, the material and the mind and I think um, gesture and, and action is very important in that um, I think it really matters um, how you know the body and practice and the skilled body is, is intervening between the two and is making sense of, of the one through the other Oh, perfect. That's what I was going to ask about the role of the body in creating um, and filling an absence. I don't think that's right, but some, I feel like there's a connection with absence, the body, the object, and then also the mind, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I, I was quite influenced um, also by uh, what's being called the French tradition of the anthropology of techniques. Um, perhaps because I, I really initially got into material culture, I suppose, because Sander van der Leeuw, uh, when he was teaching at Cambridge, kind of really encouraged me to go and do some uh, ethno-archaeological fieldwork for my undergrad dissertation. So I came up with the harebrained scheme of going to Pakistan, um, to Northwest Frontier Province, and um, uh, thinking that I'd be able to look at how men and women in pottery production um, interacted and created uh, wares. When I got there, of course, I realized that I was not being led anywhere near any women in any families. <laughs> so um, I, I was uh, that um, thought of interviewing uh, both uh, quickly went out of the window. But I, I was able to observe certain kinds of traditional forms of uh, pottery production in, in WFP and then and then wrote that up um, and then carried on reading um, about uh, ethno-archaeological work on, on pottery production in India and Pakistan and, um, and then other parts of the world and reading especially the work of uh, Pierre Le Monnier, uh, not particularly on pottery but on, on techniques and uh, Olivier Gosselin and uh, Marie-Claude Mayas and, uh, and uh, Jean-Pierre Wagnier, who develops this idea of uh, praxeo praxeology, um, which I quite liked. It's maybe not the most elegant word, but the idea that there are sensory motor skills that have an emotional content and they're propped up on material culture. With this whole kind of scheme, and it goes back to Marcel Mauss, and you know, it's, it's uh, there's a whole long, long tradition of thinking about um, 
the body's gestures and actions and how there is a technical, semi-technical um, um, skill there. So that's how I kind of insert the body, if you like, between mind cognition or whatever you want to call it and, and the materials. It's always something active there uh, around gesture, um, which is a really important part of all this work on Chez de Poitois in the anthropology, but the gesture somehow gets a bit lost in the archaeology. Well, I think for obvious reasons with some uh, materials, because it's very, very hard if one's saying that, oh, this pottery is, I can see from the traces it's wheel made, it's very hard to say what gestures are actually used because there's so many techniques of the wheel, um, maybe with stone tools. I can get a bit further with that. So, yeah, axiology. And I, I don't expect that term to gain a lot of currency, but, but uh, I think, very what, I think what's behind it is, uh, is important. So do you have an interest in the idea of the intelligent hand? Yes, I, uh, I read um, some of Joe Sofer's uh, work recently on on creativity and making, especially in the sort of European uh, context of the European Bronze Age, um, and uh, she cites Palasma quite a lot. Um, and yes, I'm quite interested in that. Lambrus Malafurus has been developing um, thinking along these lines as well. Mm -hmm. Has a big ERC project uh, really. Um, uh, focused on this in relation to clay. Um, so, yes, I, I do get into it a little bit, but um, it, it relates to creativity, I think, in quite useful ways. There's a whole other literature there that one could open up towards. So I guess following up on that, um, when, um, when it comes to something like ceramic making, you, you highlighted the you know the role of the wheel and the fact that there are many different ways to um, produce a particular effect with a different various gestures. And um, I have to think though that, that a lot of the um, some of the recent literature has been talking about habit and repetitive practice and um, perhaps the role of of time and um, repeated action in um, in shaping process and perhaps shaping these praxeologies. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the time dimension. Yeah, I um, I got into time, thinking about time a little bit differently through um, the the modeling uh, chapter, especially the ways in which um, processes of modeling um, could orient the maker and user, I suppose, to time differently, to create a more forward-looking approach or a more backward-looking approach. It's interesting that with um, models, um, one can talk about substitution quite readily. And I was going to call this chapter substituting, I think. Um, but then I realized maybe reading Nagel and Wood on anachronic 
Renaissance that substitution can imply a, a merely backward-looking, a solely backward-looking approach where you're substituting and creating a kind of chain of replicas back into the past. Um, and that could actually get wrapped up in a kind of nostalgia. Um, whereas um, some reduced scale forms are not really doing that. They're more looking forward. They're more what in architectural theory might be called a process model or a sketch model. Um, so there's a performative aspect. This is the other um, the, the distinction that Nagel and Wood make is between substitution and performance. So that you could have a very different orientation um, to time. And I found this quite useful then for looking at the level of detail in in miniatures and scaled down models because you get some that are very, very, uh, the term that's often used is crude, very seemingly, seemingly crudely made as if, and that's something pejorative, like, you know, they, they ought to have done better, whoever made them. Um, and and some are highly uh, highly detailed, and that kind of variation I find really really interesting, and um, and you can see it in in lots of different periods. Actually, you can see it in the contemporary period and different artistic approaches to to scaling down. Um, so I began to wonder if there was something to do with an attitude to time in uh, the decision to invest in detail or not, because a lot of the performative forward looking ones can be quite lacking in detail often. Um, and then when one starts applying that to some ancient examples, a lot of the um, scaled down human models, the figurines from, from Bronze, uh, Bronze Age Aegean, are very crude. They're very, um, you know, supposedly poorly made. But then if one begins to see that as actually advantageous in terms of them being process models, performative, trying to achieve some future effect, then you know, the cruder the better. You know, crudeness is, uh, is an excellent property. Um, so I think that's might not be what you're getting at, but, but that's where time has uh, come into it for me. And it just keeps on coming up again within printing. There's a very interesting relationship to time where if you look at an imprint, uh, a clay ceiling, for example, or it could even be a footprint. There's a, I think it's the, maybe it's from Bart in, in relation to photography, a here now and a there then. There's like this duality um, where, okay, this is before me now signaling something, but it was made there and then at a different time. So temporality um, is incredibly important, I think, in printing, containing as well. If something has been uh, contained within a particular kind of receptacle, there's a notion that it will be retrieved at some point, usually. Um, but when is that retrieval? Is it you know, momentarily? Is it in several years in the future? Um, I believe Astrid Van Oyen has been working on those kinds of ideas mm -hmm. in relation to storage in the Roman period. Yes. Um, I, you mentioned the idea that um, the kind of lack of finish or the crude nature of, of these miniatures is a um, a positive quality. That's a very interesting idea. And is that because it is kind of 
leaving open possibilities if we're thinking of these in a proleptic sense? And if so, how does that relate to the idea that the miniature affords a kind of control over the thing that is represented or indicated, pointed to by the object? Yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting point. Um, yes, I do think um, that the lack of uh, detail um, affords the user um, uh, various possibilities in sort of thinking through the scenarios that might be presented by a miniature or a set of miniatures. Um, how that relates to control, though, um, it's interesting. If you if you um, I think in my chapter I talk about a difference between uh, Baudelaire and Lévi-Strauss having slightly different attitudes towards um, the miniature. Lévi-Strauss may be thinking of very complete, perfect, sort of dollhouse-type miniatures that he, he apparently used to collect. Um, and, and that kind of perfection being part of um, maybe a integral part of then the, the control that one feels. But then Baudelaire talking about, you know, the the poorly made child's toy is the better child's toy in terms of then enabling and, and uh, forcing the imagination rather than it being complete. Um, so there's something about incompleteness obliging the mind to fill in the gap somehow. Um, does that provide more control? I don't know, I need to think about that a bit more. Um, so keeping with the um, imperfection theme, um, these are the, their votives, right? So might the imperfection or the lack of detail rather afford the offerer the more chance to say, oh, this is me, rather if it's something detailed, if it's, um, you know, you have even the veins down to an exact placement, there's less individuality. Where does individuality fit in with a lack of detail? Hmm, yeah, that's an interesting point. I guess that they, they provide a kind of everyman quality um, uh, to them and are sufficiently sort of uh, generic to work substitutionally in various ways. But, I mean, that raises another point of these microcosmic scenes that I think are probably um, in play on these Greek sanctuaries where a lot of these things are being deposited. Um, if you're putting together these quadruped sheep, goat, cattle figurines with human figurines against architectural backdrops, shrine representations, and with maybe miniature pots as well, then how is it that uh, uh, kind of uh, generic quality to those artifacts is helping whatever is being done with that microcosmic scene? Um, how is it that um, detail would not be helpful in that particular situation? Um, yeah, I'm not too sure. I'd have to think about that some more. Big problem is the idea of the microcosmic scene on peak sanctuaries is pretty speculative because First, peak sanctuaries have not been published. There's 25 or so uh, that have been excavated and surveyed, and there's, there is no single full publication of any of these uh, sites. Um, and 
even if they were, uh, they're open air sanctuaries. And so the sort of level of preservation of these things, either found in rock uh, crevices or just in the open, um, you're not going to get very neat associations uh, showing how things were actually you know, used together or deposited together on these on these peak sanctuaries. So um, that's a a real empirical problem with <laughs> this material. And then one does find these kinds of materials in uh, settlements as well. Uh, there's a, a PhD student at Toronto, uh, Rachel Duan, who's working on miniature vessels from from settlements. Um, but then one doesn't either there in those contexts tend to get them in sets. They're more kind of singletons. So it's it's very interesting, I think, to think about if you have a singleton miniature, is it more likely to be detailed in you know various global contexts than sets? Are they more likely to be lacking detail in some way? I think what I feel about what I've done in this book is that I've written whatever, 10,000 words on miniatures and scale. It's just a, a scratch. I mean, there's, um, I've probably made, you know, mistakes uh, within that, just within the Aegean Bronze Age, but there's, there's huge amount out there, I think. There's very interesting work done in the Andes, in anthropology and archeology span uh, on miniatures any number of global contexts to uh, explore this in. Could I jump in there and ask, um, do you think that certain cultures have a propensity towards the miniature? And you know, what are the conditions that might lead to that kind of um, obsession with the idea of the tiny that we find in certain contexts more than others? So I'm thinking of, say, 17th century Holland and a kind of miniature fever that you find in the whole you know, dollhouse culture there, which is so closely related to trade and exchange and the, the maritime networks that the Dutch are involved in in that period. Would you argue for anything parallel going on in Minoan Crete? Or is that um, stretched too far? I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of, of some work by uh, Philippe Descola, who did a show at the Quai Branly um, a few years ago, um, where he was uh, quite keen to point out, I think, that um, in exhibiting different kinds of material and visual culture, this, this show he did, uh, to try and illustrate uh, the different ontologies that he'd been writing about, um, animist, analogist, naturalist, and, I think, um, that one could have a miniature um, generated in one ontology and a miniature generated in another ontology, and they might look rather similar on the surface of things in a, in a show, but they have utterly different mm -hmm. um, positions so within those ontologies. Going on there. Um, yeah, I mean, I think. I, I tried to say a little bit about this, but I, again, I'm just scratching the surface really in, at the end of my uh, modeling chapter that um, in some situations, it seems that the miniature um, 
is modeled from a higher scale of you know real life or of the macrocosm and is drawn from that um, in other situations it seems like it is considered the uh, generating scale and life unfolds from that um, so uh, this is this is where working through um, the evidence from from the Aegean um, one direction could be to say well I've you know looked at all these different kinds of artistic expression what is the um, what does this mean for Minoan culture or ontology? It's a debate whether culture ontology is another word for culture. Mm -hmm. um, can one then say, okay, due to all these patterns, we can say that um, this is what this is how we can characterize Minoan artistic expression, Minoan culture. I've resisted taking that that leap. Um, it's interesting in in some um, approaches to ancient art, um, typically with texts alongside, that uh, some scholars have um, done that, uh, either using some ancient term or or not. Um, but uh, I didn't feel I could quite go that uh, that far. Um, um, so, we'll see how this uh, ends up being phrased, but I suppose um, if I could ask you to speculate a little bit. So, going back to your point about um, miniature vessels and the context in which they would be more likely to be detailed or so-called so crude, um, do we have any idea if they were used as containers to contain something? And how does that impact... I mean, regardless of whether we know, I guess, what, what could they contain, and then how would that factor into what they're modeling, whether they're modeling of or modeling uh, for another purpose, and how does that tie into the detail? Um, and my student, Rachel Duan, has ended up having some interesting issues in defining what a Minoan miniature is because it's not as if they have just these tiny things which are, let's say, obviously not able to contain anything and are therefore just sort of iconic in some way, and then normal-sized objects. There's quite often a kind of gradation. And so one ends up with, in certain vessels, uh, things that maybe are five, ten centimeters tall. They're obviously way smaller than the far more common uh, jug or amphora or whatever it might be. And yet they could conceivably contain something. So they are perhaps still functioning as a container. Um, but if one imagines that a, an amphora is primarily designed to contain 20 liters of something, then an amphora that contains 300 milliliters of something or a liter of something, is that still what you could call an amphora? And this this creates typological problems because if one thinks that shape is um, the be all and the end all, then one should include every single example of an amphora, however tiny, 
in your amphora section of your topology. If you think at some point the amphora shape has ceased to be an amphora and has now become a miniature, then you need to carve it off and put it in a separate miniature part of your topology. And it's a game you can't really win, because either way, you're assuming something. Um, so there is a uh, there are pots that are definitely scaled down um, that definitely scaled down if we make an assumption about what the real scale is and which could still be containing something and there's an issue there as to whether one should call them miniatures because then it becomes a question of how what, how you really defining a miniature I've thought of the miniature as actually something that is has become just an image, just an icon. Um, but that doesn't quite work as a hard and fast rule. So there are scaled down vessels that are probably still containing things. Yeah. In the context of a votive dedication, could that have a kind of metonymic relationship where you know, they contain wine or olive oil or whatever that this is you know, part, part of the whole and the miniature isn't working as an icon so much as a metonym. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, we then just have to speculate so much on what was going on in these in these ceremonies, even to your question before about them being votives, I mean, we're kind of assuming they're, they're votives. I mean, what are they standing for? I mean, we, we uh, assume that a little human figurine is standing for the person that brought it up to the peak sanctuary and deposited it, and that it continues doing action on their behalf after they've left the peak sanctuary. And then the little animal figurines are supposedly then votives for the herd or something. Um, but then um, that adherent idea can fairly seamlessly shift to sort of ideas of them being priestesses and deities. Um, so that the Palaikastro Kuros that I write a little bit about um, has exactly the same pose as those male adherents and clay, which are crude, but because it's so fine and in such fancy material, it becomes a god. Um, you know, can't possibly just be an adherent because it's, you know, chryselephantine. Um, so, but that's, that's avoiding the question on metonymy, uh, mm -hmm. parts of whole. Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of, um, part to whole um, or synecdical kind of relationships going on um, with miniatures, um, which could raise the question of the extent to which they are, they might be considered fragments, if one thinks of a fragment as also um, engaging a part to whole relationship. Because I think a fragment broken off from something, if that's how one thinks of a fragment, different from a, mm -hmm. a miniature in the way it's doing that part of the whole thing. Um, I think, let's see, there are so many things 
things I want to I want to ask. Um, I was wondering if you could go back to the um, materiality of the materials used in the dichotomy and assumptions about finer materials being for more creative, more mind-heavy processes, um, and how that really doesn't seem to be the case. I mean, if we think about clay, it's easier to impose an idea from your head on malleable clay than on ivory or stone that offers more resistance. Um, I was wondering if you could talk more about those dichotomies and how you've really um, messed with them in a productive way. <laughs> yes, it's interesting when one looks at um, some of the volumes on Aegean art from, let's say, 60s and 70s. There's quite a happy um, division made, unproblematic division made between major arts and, and minor arts. Um, and certainly in the Aegean, I think we are, we've suffered a little bit from the idea that wall painting is like you know, the premier form of expression. Um, and it is quite interesting that um, you get these, this particular emphasis on figurative, um, even narrative scenes in wall painting. Um, but there's such a privileging of that particular medium and that scale of expression because of I don't know, the history of art, I suppose, um, and uh, the two-dimensionality of it that, uh, I mean, some scholars have suggested that once that comes into its own, then all the other art forms just kind of have to follow suit which kind of ignores the very long history of three-dimensional um, artistic expression and production, not least in seals. Um, then looking at the relationship between fresco art and seals in this particular period when the, the figurative really takes off in the, in the neo-palatial period um, becomes very interesting. Uh, Valcoma has argued that you can see kind of vignettes or snippets from frescoes in seals that start to appear in this particular period, and hence the fresco takes uh, precedence. Um, what's, the, what's really the relationship between metalwork, let's say, and then stone vase production and pottery production? How many media were craftspeople working? I mean, were there skilled craftspeople who could shift between um, would people have been working wood who carved stone? No, we really have zero idea. We don't really find any wood <laughs> um, or much else organic. Um, what's the relationship between textile production and pottery production or textile production and basketry? There's all kinds of extremely interesting uh, questions there. And there's obviously many, many you know, cross-cutting connections. Is that because there are different specialists and they're all kind of part of a community, or you get singular specialists who just move across uh, materials? Um, you know, we don't really know. Um, we do find occasionally workshops on the ground. So at Malia, there seems to be a household that is a potter's workshop. Uh, there seems to be a household where uh, a sealstone worker lived and worked. 
seems to be a separate metal workers household, but they're all right next to one another. Uh, and it's really difficult identifying households as such, um, even though this Cartier new complex um, is, is very well, very well preserved. Um, and I think there is more and more work looking at these cross-cutting uh, patterns, but again, we've suffered from uh, specialisms. Um, and you know the the patchy nature of the data set. Uh, we hardly find any metals. <laughs> we assume a lot of that metals from other crafts. So they're rather thin on the ground because of the recyclability. So I I was struck by when you when you started talking about um, assemblages of miniatures and microcosms. Um, I was a little surprised that. You didn't mention Egyptian funerary models um, mm -hmm. because there's a really, really interesting set of um, little miniature, what look like workshops and storage rooms and um, even houses that are found in, in Egyptian tombs. And I'm not an Egyptologist, so take this with a grain of salt, I suppose. But um, what I've been told is that they are substituting for earlier situations in which the servants of whoever died were also buried with the person who was being buried, um, and that perhaps animals were as well. But what's interesting about these models, and what I, I sort of wanted to ask about, so they're mixed media um, in most cases, and some of them um, say there's a there's a I believe one at the Met, I think, that has a combination of a little granary and a little model um, butchery and a tannery kind of all in one. And the granary actually has real grain in the containers. Um, and so I guess I was curious as to um, whether we could speculate about what type of work that might be doing. Um, obviously, I'm asking you as a, someone who's not a specialist in uh, Egyptian archaeology, but it's a fun proposition because it might be familiar to listeners. Yeah, I wish I um, knew more about Egypt, um, and I'm vaguely aware that there's there's plenty of model uh, information um, uh, that I could have um, that you should have drawn on. Um, that's just part of my training, not extending into the Near East. I wish I knew more about. Uh, later periods within the Aegean as well. Um, um, evidently, there'd be quite a lot more to say about votives um, and <laughs> use of models in uh, classical Greece, let's say. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of what I mean by just scratching the surface. I mean, there's um, there's uh, so much more to do, I think. And and to come back to a, a question that uh, and link it to this one, a question that Verity asked that I. Um, uh, didn't answer at all about are there particular kinds of society perhaps where you might expect to find uh, militarization happening? I mean, is it something about complex societies, you know, what we call civilizations like ancient Egypt, Mesopotamia, you know, uh, Minoan Crete? Is there something that's happening in these kinds of societies as uh, social relations become more uh, complex, more hierarchical, more specialized, um, differentiated, that 
is leading to certain kinds of strategies in in material and visual culture? And is there a reason why we're getting, for example, house models all across uh, the Near East um, in you know later prehistory and protohistory? Is there something to do with you know managing? Is it something to do with managing relations? Is it something to do with uh, thinking about architecture and space through models? Uh, perhaps I mean I think that then gets into uh, a little bit what I've been what I mentioned in the, in the first chapter about what are we really seeking to do? Are we are we seeking to explain in the kind of social science model uh, and look at causality, or are we looking more at building up thick descriptions and sort of entanglements, or can we do both, uh, which I think I suggest we should maybe be trying to do. Um, I, think, I think I would like to see a, a broader kind of cross-cultural uh, exploration of uh, some of these things. Which would run the risk of saying, you know, if you've got a, you know, a complex society, um, then you know, it could become predictive. I suppose you should look out for these kinds of, you know, um, patterns in material and visual culture. Um, but perhaps looking across the Near East, um, uh, one might be able to do something. I'm, I'm reminded actually of, of David Wengro writing about seals in the Near East and, and the particular uh, phenomenon of finding um, kind of compressive composition um, on seals where you get these, these monsters. It's got this whole book on, I think it's called The Origin of Monsters, I'm not sure, but it's about monsters and seal iconography. And then what is going on in these particular situations of complex societies where this kind of art is emerging where uh, maybe elites can control highly skilled production of images in these um, you know precious semi-precious materials and then maybe in the way that um, Julius Caesar controls the, the production of coins with Julius Caesar on um, that these very powerful images of monsters can then controlled and distributed and disseminated. There's something very particular to the power of being able to carve something in stone that's uh, compositional and uh, has all kinds of ideological and political meaning, I suppose, and then um, that being a, a form of cultural transmission. I think we have time for one more question. And I was going to ask you something complicated about ontologies, but I think I might actually ask you something rather more light-hearted, which is um, I was fascinated by the way that you referred several times to um, play and toys, and I mean the miniature automatically raises this question, and it's something I've wondered about um, for a while and never really got to the bottom of, like the archaeological problem of the toy. How do you identify something as a toy or not a toy? And, um, and I mean, yeah, how do you make that distinction and how does that relate to these bigger questions about the idea of miniaturization and modeling? 
Yeah, I mean, it's curious, isn't it, that the, the, the sort of the knee-jerk reaction to miniatures is often that they're toys or votives, uh, which might, on the surface, seem like very different things, you know, serious religion, playful kids, objects. But then I, I should read a lot more, but I read a little bit about the, the links through Gadamer of play and, and, and ritual and the, um, the, the need to sort of uh, play the game. And, and so maybe they're not so far apart um, as uh, we might you know, initially um, assume. But, I mean, we have gaming boards from Minoan and Crete, and there's, um, there's surely a lot more that one could do to think about mm -hmm. um, this connection between um, play and, and ritual. But as I said, I, need to, I just read a bit of Gadamer and some of the stuff by Marshall Poynton, I think, as well. Um, and, and then I guess it could relate to Winnicott and transitional objects. Mm -hmm. And um, we are all playthings of the gods, after all. <laughs> um, well, thank you for a, a really fascinating discussion, uh, Professor Nappert, and um, we must all make sure we read his book, which is due out in January or February yes, 2020. Right. So please look out for it. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to Radio Science a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our next podcast, which will be recorded and posted in about a month, will be with Shannon Novak, University of Syracuse. Radio Siams is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Thanks for listening.